everybody, welcome to another episode of Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball history podcast. I'm one half of the show. My name is Jeff. Joining us back, he is uh, he was on a, a, a PED suspension for one week, but he's back from our remote studios, this time uh, still in Tacoma, but a remote studio. It's Mark A. Johnston. Welcome back to the show, Mark. That's, that's one way to describe it. I'll tell you what, man, um, the great thing is no matter where you go, you can find some baseball these days. So um, it's not about where I am. It's about what I can what I can watch, what I can hear, what I can see. Well, and our, our PED uh, policy is a lot less stringent than the major leagues. Uh, neither of us are suffering from ringworm, so we don't have any worries there. Yeah, I think we're good to go. You know, despite the fact that it was our highest rated show ever last week when you were missing. <laughs> and especially it seems uh, females liked it a lot better. And in Botswana, wow, number one baseball podcast. You know, and, and and we've been pulling for that Botswana demographic. Yes. And so we finally reached our goal. Yes. Thank you, Botswana. I think we're going to do a live show from Botswana very, very soon. So okay. let's uh, let's get right into it. We got a lot to a lot to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about Vin Scully today. Uh, I had this. Uh, I've had this on the. It's been percolating now. It's, it was ready last week, but because you. Uh, we're not available last week. I wanted to hold off because it's uh, something I think we both want to talk about. There's a lot of games here. We should both uh, be able to come up with some topics to discuss. So we'll you do bet. that. But first, let's get into BP because you especially could be a little tight today, a little out of practice. So yeah, I, I got I to gotta stretch and, and, and take my hacks. I'm with you. All right. Well, let's start off with let's start off with Ricky Henderson. What do you think? Is that a... <laughs> It's a, we never talk about him. Yeah, we never do. So let's 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 talk about a little bit of Ricky. So Will Clark. So Will Clark last week had his number retired by the Giants. It's been a great year for some of my favorite players getting their numbers retired. Keith Hernandez, number retired a couple weeks ago. Will Clark just got his number retired by the Giants. And Dave Stewart getting his number retired by the A's very soon. I'm not exactly sure when that is. So some really good stuff, but Will Clark was on KNBR, which is uh, the Giants' flagship station here locally in the Bay Area, and uh, they had a question, and uh, he had a great answer. Going back to your playing days, who was the most fun guy to have over at first base when you were playing first base and he was a runner? Who who was the funniest guy or who was the most fun you enjoyed having over there at first, or did you just hate everybody? Oh, uh, <laughs> all right, the, the funniest, hands down, is Ricky Henderson. That first base, this is spring training, I forget which year, and Tiggle and McGuire are coming up behind him, so LaRusa had uh, put on a stop sign on him, and, and Ricky's getting pissed. And Ricky, when he was at first base, he always talked in the third person. Say, goes, hey, thrill, Ricky here? I go, no, I know, Rick. So he's getting pissed. He's got, he's got the whole sign put on, and he's, you can see he's getting mad. And he goes, he goes, thrill, Ricky. Ricky want to run. And I said, well, Rick, go ahead on, Jack. He goes, you got it. Three Ricky gone. So, so I, look at, I look in the dugout there, Roger Curry, he's looking at me. I go, he's running right here, right? So we pitch out. Ricky slides in because he's the best there was. He slides in safe at second base. He jumps up and he's pointing at me. He says, I told you, Thrill. Ricky gone. Ricky gone. <laughs> I'm a little bit shocked that Ricky, who was famous for not knowing anybody's name, knew who Will Clark was and even called him by his nickname, 
which is pretty shocking. He, he had actually studied for that. He, oh, he was prepping? That was in the, the, the hitters meetings, I guess, That's probably. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of Ricky Henderson, uh, and of course, I mean, you know, again, I'm going to bring this up every week because I, I cannot stop thinking about fantasy camp coming up for Oakland. I went ahead and I am now the proud owner of some Mizuno lime green batting gloves from the late 80s. And Beautiful. Uh, yeah, I custom ordered some Franklin batting gloves, which I, I've always liked Franklin batting gloves. They're so comfortable and soft. These are not the official. These are not the ones that Ricky wore. They look just like them. They're from Mexico. These are not actually Mizuno gloves, but they're like, you know, they're just they're knockoffs. They are. I, I ordered large because that's what size I wear and they, I can barely get them on. They are just they're <laughs> awful in terms of being batting gloves. But if you think I am not going to wear them and have my picture taken with them during this fantasy camp in A's uniform, you're crazy, first of all. You know, Jeff, I've been a little bit concerned that uh, you're going to get noticed in this fantasy camp and that pretty soon I'm going to be doing the show by myself because you're going to be down in double A or trying to earn your way up to the big leagues. Yeah, well, there was a note at one point that said specifically, do not expect, you're not going to be scouted, you're not going to be signed. I'm going to prove them wrong. <laughs> There you go. There you go. Now that's the attitude I wanted to hear, man. So I I was thinking though, Mark, what else should I specifically take that, you you know, maybe that you don't see anymore. I was thinking like maybe one of those plastic windbreaker, plastic, whatever jackets that players, you know, it looks like you're trying to make weight. We've talked about them before that they used to wear under the jersey. Or they just wear them under the jersey. yeah. Yeah. Should I do that? Maybe a batting helmet with no ear flaps. Yeah, that's a good one. I, well, I don't think they'll allow me to wear that, but I, I just let's see if we can get some suggestions from our listeners of maybe something that, uh, you know, you just don't see anymore, like the like the Mizuno green batting gloves that I'm going to take and, and we'll see what I can come up with. You seen the movie Super Troopers, Mark? Of course. You're familiar with the meow game? Yes, sir. For listeners that aren't, what Super Troopers, they're cops. They pull over uh, people and they play a meow game sometimes where they will just say the word meow in the in the middle of a sentence and see how many times they can say it during a thing. Well, uh, this uh, we're recording this show on, on Sunday. This is an interview from Atlanta Hammers outfielder Michael Harris. And this is after the game. I'm just going to play a short clip of this. But, uh, he's getting in on some of the meow game fun. At some point, these are going to become normal for you, right? No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect too much. Meow. Um, yeah, I'm just. I'm just feeling good right now, and I mean, I'm, I'm glad we're winning. We got a. We got a streak going, and uh, we're just trying to get back. Get back home and try to have a good series against uh, New York. So, <laughs> I don't know if you caught the meow in there. He got six of them in in about a two-minute period. Uh, you know, the A's are, are bad this year. I don't know if you knew that or not. Well, I think they still got time to uh, to turn it on, you know. Yeah, well, a couple of days ago, it marked 69 games since they had tripled. Wow. That, that is a new record, by the way. Just not are they just futile, period, but they can't even triple anymore. They broke the record that was set by the Mets last year. And I know how important triples are to you. Well, you know, I'm no Ryan Sandberg, but yeah, I well. do I do enjoy me some triples. <laughs> So uh, this week I was looking at Nelson Figueroa's baseball reference page, and I'll I'll get to why I was shortly, because it's, 
I don't know how often somebody just says, you know what? I want to look up Nelson Figueroa and, and look at his. It happens, but you're right. Not, not often. Yeah. Not I mean, often. I'm sure it happens. It's got to happen. I mean, it happened to me. I was just doing it. But uh, so he pitched in the big leagues for nine years with six different teams, including two stints with the Phillies. During that time, he had eight different jersey numbers over those nine seasons, but he never had the same number twice. He wore oh, that's funny. 56, 57, 52, 37, 35, 27, 44, and 28. So I was wondering who has the most numbers worn in a career without ever wearing the same number twice. Okay, okay. I was so I was wondering if it could be Figgy and how cool would it be if you just kept changing jersey numbers and kept going up a single digit each time and see if anybody noticed. <laughs> uh, so I found this Mike Morgan wore 11 different numbers, but he wore the same number several times. Ken Brett wore 13 different numbers, but wow. he wore the number 34 three times. But to start his career, he wore 12 consecutive different numbers. Wow. <laughs> and, and then I think teams started to catch on what he was doing and said, whoa, that's too much fun. <laughs> chill, yes. chill out. You know the rules. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time on this because there was no real search on uh, on baseball reference or stat head to make this easy. I think I found the winner in terms of the player who wore the most unique jersey numbers without repeating in their career and that is one mr bob miller who wore 16 different jersey numbers without ever retiring he just couldn't find the one that was lucky no and i mean he pitched for for 17 years he pitched from 1957 through 1974 he pitched 17 years in the big leagues he ended up with a 69 and 81 mark a 3.37 era and he's a right-hander, too. So, you know, he had to be pretty good to pitch that long for this many teams. Man. But 16 different jersey numbers he wore without ever repeating a jersey number. Maybe he was one of those rare crafty righties. <laughs> well, whatever, whatever he did, he won three World Series rings. He won uh, two with the Dodgers and one in 63, one in 65. And then he was part of the 71 Pirates. He's got teams. Yeah, he's got a a closet full of jerseys, all with unique numbers on them and three World Series rings. Yeah, he's doing better than me as far as accolades. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, my my, that then led me into who was worn the most consecutive jersey numbers in their career. And again, uh, there's no way to, to really do this. I came up with a couple literally by just looking at pitchers who or not pitchers, but players who played the most and looked at their jersey numbers. So Ross Detweiler, a, uh, a rare current player for this podcast, he has so far worn 44, 45, 46, 47 and 48. Ooh. So that's five. I also found that the only major league pitcher to ever hit me with a thrown ball, Julian Tavares, he wore 50, 51, 52, 54, and 55. So he was just missing 53. So I think Ross Detweiler is the leader in the clubhouse right now with, uh, with five consecutive numbers. If anybody can find better than that, make sure to let us know. Um, as I said, though, I started this train of thought because I was looking at Nelson Figueroa's numbers 
And uh, not less than like three hours after that, I see something on social media that says the Stanton Island Ferry Hawks, who are in the Independent Atlantic League, they have an unexpected doubleheader on Tuesday, and they badly needed a starting pitcher because they were not expecting to have to play two games that day. I don't know how doubleheader sneaks up on you, but it did. So their pitching coach, none other than Nelson Figueroa. <laughs> so he came out of retirement to start game one. He last played in the big leagues in 2011. <laughs> That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So they didn't know about this game until the day before when they were on a 10 hour bus ride to get home. <laughs> oh, and they're like, oh, by the way, you're playing two against the Gastonia Honey Hunters. Oh, man, of all teams. I know the Honey Hunters. They are they're good. I don't know, they might be, I don't know. Uh, tensions were said to be high prior to the first pitch. Fairy Hawk's not happy. Now, I I needed to know what number he wore because I've already said that he wore eight different numbers. I, I figured out, how am I, how am I going to know this? Well, inexplicably, the Fairy Hawks broadcast all of their games live on YouTube. So <laughs> I feel like this might be a sickness, but I watched the game. He wore number 23, a number which he never wore in the big leagues. So how did he do wearing a New Jersey number, having not pitched professionally in uh, about a decade, you might ask? Tell me, Jeff, how did he do? Well, he went, this was a doubleheader. So the first game was seven innings. He went the entire seven innings. Nice. Yeah, he took the loss, though. Uh, yeah. he, seven innings, he gave up 10 runs, eight earned. He walked four. He struck out four. Nice. So, you know, for somebody that just like, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> he, that's pretty impressive. Also, manager of the, of the Ferry Hawks, former Met, Edgardo Alfonso, is there. Wow, also nice. on the roster, Kelsey Whitmore, who is a two-way player just like Otani, and the first woman to play in the Atlantic League. Very nice. So, actually, pitching coaches taking the mound, not exactly front-page news in the Atlantic League. Daryl Thompson, he played for a couple of seasons for the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs and then became their pitching coach in 2019, but he also just kept on playing. Since becoming their pitching coach, he's racked up a record of 42-14 and 14 with an ERA in the mid-threes and a whip of 1.1. That's amazing. So also, while pitching and being the pitching coach, he was named the 2019 and 2021 Atlantic League Pitcher of the Year. Wow. I guess you kind of have to listen to him. <laughs> That's a good point. Do as I do, fellas. Yeah. All right. This show is debuting on August 16th. There were a lot of names, not a lot of great names, but there was one name I wanted to talk about who made their debut today, and he's a Hall of Famer, and he's one of our favorites. In 1989, Larry Walker made his debut in Major League Baseball. He played his first game against the Giants that day, first game in the big leagues. Larry got a hit off of the Giants' Mike Lacoste and then uh, walked three times. After his nice. third walk, he's standing on first base, and Will Clark, we've already heard a great story from earlier today, he says to, uh, to Walker on first base, he says, quote, it's your first game in the big leagues, and they're pitching you like your Babe Ruth. <laughs> Gotta make him feel good. Walker, of course, is Canadian. He grew up wanting to be a, a goalie in the NHL rather than a baseball player, and he's been lifelong friends with NHL Hall of Famer Cam Neely since they were playing street hockey together 
uh, as young boys. His father is Larry Walker Sr. So I guess Larry Walker is actually Larry Walker Jr. Larry has three brothers, Gary, Carrie, and Barry. Okay, see, now you got parents setting themselves up right there. I've got to assume that Larry was the oldest, though. So he got the junior designation. And then they were probably watching like the Bob Newhart show and, you know, Brother Larry and the other Brother Larry. That's got to be confusing. Yeah. I mean, you got to be real distinct with that first syllable. (laughs) If you're not hearing anything until the airy, you don't know if you're in. Maybe they they're just waiting to see if they get their middle name call because then they know they're in trouble and they have to pay attention. Right. Good point. Uh, Larry Walker also bowled a perfect game in 2014. So just like Mookie. Mookie, I was going to say Mookie Wilson and then Mookie Mookie Blaylock, uh, just like Mookie (laughs) Betts, a two-sport athlete there. And then I did want to mention that today in 1996, August 16th, Greg Perkle played his final game in the majors. Oh, man, Perkle power. (laughs) I love Greg Perkle. And there's just, he's just a big guy that just has, I mean, he's kind of like Daniel Vogelbach, right? Just a big guy. I think he could actually turn his neck without having to move his whole body, unlike <laughs> Daniel Vogelbach. But <laughs> Perkle, for a while, they he came in and he was one of those extra pitchers, you know, and he was striking guys out left and right. And they they tried to convert him into a pitcher for a while, and he, uh, you know what, that guy could bring it. I don't I don't remember him pitching, but I I would love to see it. Perkle power, baby. I was there. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our BP segment. Let's let the ground through come out and do their stuff. It's uh, it's really hot here today. So the, I I feel like we just stretched and we didn't take BP. We're just swinging in the cages. So they don't have a whole lot to do. We're going to let them do their stuff because Mark, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, now two weeks ago, Vin Scully, unfortunately, passed away and uh, just a legend. I mean, there's no, every, my mom knew who Vin Scully was. I think, I think sure. just about everybody knew who Vin Scully was. So I definitely wanted to talk about him and I wanted to wait till you were here so that we could discuss further. So let's get right into Vin Scully. A little bit of history first, before we get into some of the legendary calls and stories from Vin Scully. He graduated from Fordham University in 1949 with a degree in English. Some very disturbing info though, that I found about Vin. Well, he was attending Fordham. He was the member of a barbershop quartet. <laughs> yes, that had to bother me. That bothered me a lot. Now, while not in the same category as, you know, punching babies or, or that kind of stuff, it's pretty darn close. Uh, that will be the extent of Vin slander, though, that will be tolerated uh, on this podcast. <laughs> Remember when I messed up a while ago and I talked about the Society for the Prevention of Barbershop Quartet Singing, when it was actually the Society for Preservation of Barbershop Quartet? Yeah, you decided to start the prevention. <laughs> yes, I am the founding member of that. Uh, let's see. So after graduating from Fordham, Vin blanketed the East Coast with applications. Eventually, he got an interview with CBS Radio, where Red Barber was the director of sports. Famous, very famous baseball voice. Barber was impressed with Vin, but there were no openings at the time. Later down the road, though, a couple months, Barber called Scully, uh, Scully's house at least, when he needed a last-minute replacement to do a play-by-play job for a college football game that was being played at Fenway Park in Boston. Well, Scully's mother answered the phone and took the message for Vin 
And she relayed to him that Red Skelton wanted to talk to him about a job. <laughs> well, hey, who wouldn't want to work for Red Skelton, right? <laughs> now, I know I know the name Red Skelton. I know he was a, I think he was a comedian, wasn't he? I don't know much more about him, but <laughs> Red Barber and Red Skelton are two different uh, universes. This will really show my age here, uh, Jeff, but I, when I was younger, I saw Red Skelton live. Okay. <laughs> I'm not joking, man. Okay. Well, I'll just let that one go. I won't. Yeah, that's a true story. I also saw Bob Hope. So let's just move on. In that last dinosaur, too. You saw that as well. Uh, so Scully figured out that Red Skelton was not actually calling him, but rather Red Barber. So he got in touch with him. He got to Fenway only to learn there was no room for him in the press box to call this game. So this is a football game. Remember, it's November in Boston. And with only a light coat, Vin sets out to call the entire game from the roof of the press box. Braving the winds, it was a chilly fall day. All he had was a 60-watt light bulb, which he used to warm his hands. Oh, my gosh. Yikes. That's dedication, baby. Yeah, well, it it was. And, and Barber was very impressed with the way that Scully did this game. And he had no idea of Scully's plight during this game. Later, when he learned that he had called this game from the roof with barely a a windbreaker on, he was impressed by the stamina and even more impressed that during the entire game, Scully never complained about the conditions. Never mentioned that he, too, was sitting outside and and watching and talking about this game as they played it. Man, I would have whined a blue streak, I tell you what. So eventually in 1950, Ernie Harwell, who was at that point the voice of the Brooklyn Dodgers, along with Red Barber, he left for the Giants booth. And yes, that's correct. The Giants, not the Tigers yet. Not yet. Barber needed to find a replacement to join him in calling Dodger games, and he decided to go with a young broadcaster who had impressed him with that football game, later describing Sully as a pretty appealing young green pea. <laughs> wow, what a compliment, I tell you yeah. what. And then he went on to say he was a boy who had something on the ball. That uh, That is on the ball, not in the, for clarifications there. So Vin Scully, who was just 22 years old in 1950, called his first game for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Wow. 1953 World Series comes around between the Dodgers and the Yankees, and the series sponsor Gillette offered Red Barber $200 per game to call the games nationally, take it or leave it. They wanted to, for him to be on NBC radio. Barber said, $200, I'm going to leave it. Yeah, that's not a whole lot of money to do a World Series game, I guess, at that point. So Gillette turned to Vin. And he said, hey, do you want to you call the series? We'll give you 200 bucks." So Scully, being the gentleman he was, he called Red first, seeking his permission, since Red had turned it down and he was his mentor. Barber was genuinely moved by Scully actually calling him and, and, and you know asking for permission, said, yes, please go ahead and do it. And uh, with that, here is some actual, this is the earliest Vin Scully audio that survives as far as I could find today. This is from 1953 and the World Series. Seventh time they have gone away empty-handed. The Brooklyn Dodgers have discovered so many broken-hearted defeats. Just in 1950, it took a 
suspension and hold on by Dick Sittler of the Philadelphia Phillies to beat them out of a pennant. In 51, in the ninth inning of the last game of a three-game playoff, Bobby Thompson, home run in the last of the ninth inning, broke the hearts of all of Brooklyn. Last year, Johnny Mize and a fine Yankee team did it again. And if that heart could stand it even one more time, it was broken once again by Billy Martin. And so the Brooklyn Ball Club suffers perhaps its most bitter and disappointing defeat. Kind of classic Vin, even as he... <laughs> you know, that's amazing. His his cadence maybe changed a little bit, but that voice is distinctive. Well, and, he, you know, that that's not a script. He's just no. talking off the top of his head. Absolutely. And it's just, it's Vin Scully being Vin Scully. Well, all of a sudden, Scully, at the age of 25, is now on the national stage. He remains to this day the youngest person to ever call a World Series obviously <laughs> he was invited back many times that offseason barber left the left the dodgers for the yankees and then became the lead voice of the dodgers a role that he would hold for the next 67 years all the way up to 2016 wow. now when i think of a voice from baseball the three names that always come to the top of my mind are vin scully mel allen and bob shepherd Two of those announcers, and then Bob Shepard, of course, the legendary PA announcer for Yankees, you know, at Yankee Stadium for ages. It also happens that the Yankees tried to get Vin to come back to New York and replace Mel Allen at one point as the voice of the Yankees in 1964. But uh, surprisingly, and not whether you know this or not, he turned him down. No, he did. <laughs> yeah, he didn't. He was he at no point was the uh, the voice of the Yankees. Vin was not just great at calling baseball games, but he did a whole bunch of other sports equally as well. For me, if I have to claim a football team, which don't make me, but if I have to, it's always been the 49ers. They were good when I was growing up. The Raiders, they were coming and going and screwed up my favorite team's baseball stadium. The catch in 1982 NFC Championship game. Joe Montana to Dwight Clark versus the Cowboys. I mean, it's one of the most famous plays in sports, let alone just football. And who was there to call it? None other than Vin Scully. Of course, for the upstart 49ers, they're six yards away from Pontiac. Third and three. We'll see a pickup sometime on the right side, possibly. Montana looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. I remember watching that game. I do not remember hearing or probably even at that point knowing who Vin Scully was. I mean, I was nine years old at that point, but. Yeah, I was a little older. Uh, <laughs> well, remember, you were 42 at that point. Vince. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was in my 70s uh, waiting to become an octogenarian and uh, good old Vin was there calling the, calling the football games. That was the last football game, by the way, that he called. After that, he said, I can't do any better than that. I'm not going to do football anymore. <laughs> so, That's pretty smart. Yeah, so Vin moved from CBS to NBC Sports, where he would become the lead baseball announcer from 1983 to 1989, calling the Saturday game of the week for NBC. He also called three World Series for NBC, four NLCS, and four All-Star games. Uh, this was music to my ears in uh, in junior high school. That meant it was time for my one and only live baseball game of the week that that week. Back in the days when we got one. Yeah, it was Vin Scully and Joe Garagiola. 
yes. every now and then Tony Kubek would would be on as well. And I I really loved Vin and Joe. I, I know Joe was became a bit of an old curmudgeon. Yeah, he, he he did. He always talked about the back of the batter's box. Oh, look at everybody's wiping out the back of the batter's box and standing too deep every week. I'm like, Joe, we get it, man. What are you going to do? He was a catcher, wasn't he? So that was probably, that probably drove him crazy when he played. I don't know. Uh, Scully received the Ford Frick Award from the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1982. So in 82, he's inducted into the Hall of Fame. He would broadcast baseball games for 34 more years after that. That's incredible. In his time, he called 19 no-hitters. That's got to make for some good... uh, Good games to call. I could go on and on about his honors and everything else he did. But, Mark, I really want to listen to some of his most famous calls. And and you and I can just talk about the voice of baseball as we grew up and and how, for me, especially Vin Scully really taught me the game. He taught me things that I wouldn't have known by just, you know, reading books or stuff, by telling stories and, and explaining what was going on and that kind of stuff. So the first one I want to remember here is Sandy Koufax, his perfect game in September of 1965. It is 9.46 p.m. Two and two to Harvey Keene. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. On the scoreboard in right field, it is 9.46 p.m. in the city of the Angels, Los Angeles, California. And a crowd of 29,139. Just sitting in to see the only pitcher in baseball history to hurl four no-hit, no-run games. He has done it four straight years, and now he capped it on his fourth no-hitter. He made it a perfect game. So, (laughs) Vin mentioned that Koufax is the only pitcher with four no-hitters. Vin actually went on to call Nolan Ryan's fifth no-hitter. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, so that was, he he saw the record twice. Uh, there. <laughs> also, uh, only one perfect game in the World Series, that being Don Larson. Guess who was there? Got him! The greatest game ever pitched. Nice ball hit by Don Larson. A no-hitter, a perfect game in a World Series. Never in the history of the game has it ever happened in a World Series. Only the second time in baseball history, a World Series. So there it is, Don Larson, of course, the Yankees in the World Series that year. One of his less famous calls, but only because a lot of people haven't heard it because everybody was watching it on TV, is Vin was doing the game on the radio when Henry Aaron hit his 715th home run. Ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. And Vin just let, uh, as as is a great thing to do, especially on radio, just let the crowd tell the rest of the story. But it's not quite as famous as the, what is it? Uh, there's a new home run champion and it's Henry Aaron. Vin was there doing his job, doing it 
spectacularly well as usual. As he always did. Yep. Uh, another call, of course, this one. We've talked about this one a whole lot. Fernando Valenzuela for the Dodgers throwing a no-hitter. The second no-hitter of the day after uh, Dave Stewart had completed one earlier uh, up in Toronto. Fernando ready in the strike two pitch. is hit back to the box, dribbling to second. Samuel on the bag, close to first double play. Fernando Valenzuela has pitched a no-hitter at 10.17 in the evening of June the 29th, 1990. If you have a sombrero, throw it to the sky. Vin loves to give the, the time and the date. He does, he does. But hey, if Vin's doing it, that must be the thing to do. It's if he's doing it, then it's right. Yeah, that's the right thing. Uh, I mentioned the World Series that he called uh, when he was with NBC. Of course, that includes the 1986 Mets Red Sox World Series. And it's going to go to the backstop. Here comes Mitchell to score the tying run. And Ray Knight is at second base. Little roller up along first. Behind the back. I remember that. I remember Vin specifically from that. Oh, man, I remember every word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and then, of course, this one, <laughs> this one's a little bit harder for me, of course. But, uh, I mean, who can forget the 1988 Game 1 walk-off with Kurt Gibson? And look who's coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what What Vin really had the ability to do was take an already dramatic moment and turn it into just a miraculously dramatic moment. And, and baseball is dramatic enough, especially in exactly. some of these things. And, uh, he, would, he would get you all set up, man. He would get you worked up even more than the game did itself. And I think that was the magic of Vince Coley right there. Of course, for Dodgers fans, one thing that, let off every game, which is this is I'm jealous that they got to hear this every game. Uh, mm. It wasn't time for a Dodgers game unless you first heard these words. Well, we've had all the introductions. We've had all the pomp and circumstance. We've had all the fuss and feathers. But it's time. It's time for Dodger baseball. So Vin was a master storyteller which is part of the charm of the games. He worked alone, and uh, that afforded him time to balance between the game action and a literal library of stories that he had in his head, from racing on ice skates against Jackie Robinson to talking about why Yasiel Puig licked his bats. He had so many stories, and that's something, you know, that... I find when I am watching a game or listening to a game on the radio, when there is somebody, and, and it's very obvious to me, when they don't have that kind of stuff to fall back on. They don't have stories from past seasons. They're literally just talking about what's going on right there. I don't know. For me, it kind of it kind of separates announcers that I can really listen to and, and, and then announcers that I try to just block out and watch the game. And obviously, Vin's one of those guys you want to listen to. So here is a great story 
where he is describing why the Washington senators would bring their own dirt to New York when they played at the polo grounds. You know, looking at Clayton Kershaw's uniform with all the dirt on it, it reminds us about the importance of dirt to certain people. You know, first of all, the umpires get a certain dirt and they rub the new balls before putting them in the game. Back in 1916, the Yankees were playing in the polar grounds. And whenever the Washington Senators came to New York to play the Yankees, would you believe they brought their own dirt? You're saying, what? They would bring their own dirt to dry their hands. And they claim the soil around home plate in the polo grounds was trick dirt. Have you ever heard of trick dirt? Here's the 1-1 pitch on the way. Fastball banged into right field. Base hit. Yeah, to conclude the thought, the Washington Senators, as they were then called, said that instead of drying the moisture on their hands, the dirt in the polo grounds made their hands slippery and the balls and bats harder to handle. How about that? Trick dirt. So that is completely on the fly. Because the, the video that goes along with this, Clayton Kershaw had uh, fallen, and so the back of his jersey was dirty. And that's what triggered this from Vin Scully. Nothing planned, just off the top of his head, and while he's calling an inning. It's beautiful. It's, that's just how it's done. Yep. Manager for the Rockies, Jim Tracy. Tracy gets tossed after uh, a batter was called out after, or a batter was called safe, I'm sorry, after the Rockies uh, outfielder tried to make a sliding catch in the outfield. He actually caught it. Tracy didn't agree and he got tossed, but of course he got his uh, money's worth. And uh, as happens to be the case, a lot of times uh, there's some swear words thrown around when people get ejected. Well, Vin was trying to tell everybody what was going on, but of course Vin was trying to make it a much more family-friendly version on the fly. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The meeting looks like they're going to call it a trap. And Jim Tracy, he caught the ball, Jim said. He caught the ball. He caught the Blinken ball. He caught the darn ball. Uh-oh, you're gone. He is gone. That is Blinken fertilizer. I'm doing the best to translate. You gotta be blinking me. The ball, he caught the ball. No way, no blinking way. No bloody way. Jim's gone, so he's spending house money now. I love that with a British accent, all of a sudden in the middle of this ejection. Uh, that's just fantastic. He's spending on house money now. <laughs> so, uh, Vin Scully, let's talk about TVs and movies, because we love to talk about TVs and movies. His narration plays a very important part in one of my favorite baseball movies, For the Love of the Game. Kevin Costner, who also, by the way, For the Love of the Game, originally supposed to be Tom Cruise as, as Billy <laughs> Chapel. Oh, my God, that would have been awful. Uh, Kevin Costner asked that Scully be hired as the play-by-play -play announcer for this movie. Director Sam Raimi let Scully come up with most of his own dialogue and listen to his advice on one key scene. Scully said, quote, I said to Sam after showing me the game, not the movie, just the game, Sam, for 99% of the time, you're right on. But you couldn't resist going Hollywood. The last play to preserve this whole thing 
It could have happened, but it's a stretch. I'd hate to see you do a stretch when it's so good up to here, end quote. Mm. Well, Raimi reshot the scene. I have been unable to find out what the original ending was. Spoiler Mm. alert here for a 23-year-old movie. Costner gets the perfect game. The final out is actually a 163 put out at first, which is an odd way to end a perfect game in a movie especially, but I'd be interested to know what uh, what the original ending was. Do you think it involves space aliens? <laughs> or uh, Spider-Man? I don't know. Oh, no, see, I'm in for that. Yeah. That, well, speaking of space aliens, the X-Files. Ooh. Vin made it a, his voice at least made an appearance in an episode called The Unnatural in 1999. He's credited as baseball announcer. The X-Files creator, Chris Carter, though, is a big baseball fan, and he was a big fan of Vin. Thusly, how Dana Scully got her last name after Vin. Hmm. Vin also made appearances on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, which I obviously you're familiar with since you're... Suck it to me, baby. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Another series he was the narrator for, for 24 episodes of a TV series called The Occasional Wife which I had never heard of. Hmm. Uh, I, did you play a homeless person on that at any point? Uh, no, that wasn't one of my homeless no. Uh, appearances. No, no. <laughs> okay. not that I remember. There was a lot. I, I, I don't know. Uh, he also made an appearance on the Fugitive TV series. Wow. He was on the Joey Bishop show, which I know the name, but that was uh, a long time back. He also appeared in the episode of Mr. Ed, where remember Mr. Ed becomes a baseball player. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I do remember that. Yeah, so he was, uh, he was, I'm, I don't know if it was just his voice or if he made an appearance on that. Vin also has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's awesome. Uh, so beloved was Vin that every game he would broadcast, the umpires would actually acknowledge him in some way before the game started. Most of the time, they would, after the lineups were exchanged, where all four of them were still there at home plate, they'd turn around and wave to Vin Scully up in the press box which is pretty cool. That's awesome. Growing up in New York, Vin lived near the polo grounds and he often went to Giants games. So Vin Scully, the almost, (laughs) well, for the Los Angeles Dodgers, almost the entire franchise time there, he was the voice. Also a long time in in New York. Can you guess who Vin Scully's all-time favorite player is? Uh, Jackie? No, it was Willie Mays. Okay. Willie Mays of the Giants is the favorite all-time player of the Dodgers. <laughs> Long-time announcer, which is kind of strange because, you know, Vin was really good friends with Sandy Koufax. But yeah, he grew up a Giants fan uh, and, and went to the polo grounds and, and got to watch Willie Mays. A couple of things I saw here that were posted by uh, Jim Passan, who is a friend of the show. Not Jeff Passan, Jim Passan. 10,669 players had made their major league debut before Vin Scully started broadcasting Dodger games. 10,641 more made their major league debuts after he started broadcasting. So almost half of the players that ever played, Vin Scully was in the booth for. That is incredible. Uh, At the time when he retired in 2016, he had broadcast 67 of the 133 seasons in the Dodger franchise history. That is a little bit more than 50%. (laughs) That is incredible. 
That, 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 you know what? If you, you could have let me guess for days, I wouldn't have come up with that. Yeah, well, get this. In his first spring training as a Dodgers announcer, he broadcast a game where a team was managed by Connie Mack. Okay, now we're, we're really pushing far back yeah. here. I mean, Connie Mack managed his first game in 1894. <laughs> wow. That is, that's before the Cleveland Spiders, you know, season of, 19, uh, of 1899 that we talked about way back when. That is uh, just incredible. I, I think you could, if you're doing like the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, you could probably do the one degree of Vin Scully to most people that have played baseball. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> okay, so there it is. There is Vin Scully. I wanted to make sure and, and do that when you were here, Mark, just so we could talk about some of these games. All right, Mark, it is uh, time for us to wrap up this segment of the show, and we are going to go into everybody's mostly everybody's favorite segment of the show. It is time for Wax Packs Heroes. Wax Pack Hero! Gotta pull a Wax Pack Hero! Stars in his eyes. Wax Pack Hero! On the podcast tonight! All right, Mark, uh, I, I had a brief respite there where I, I did not win a game, but I'm, I got back on track right now. If we look at the scoreboard, it is seven to four. I am on top for the first time ever. Very excited about this. And uh, today, I think we're going to finish up that pack that we started to open of the uh, 2003 tops. So there are only 14 cards left in this pack. So okay. I thought we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of an abbreviated one today, and we're going to each do seven. Sounds good. So um, let's go through the rules first, and then I'll let you decide which of these seven you want. So we're going to open up this. uh, We're going to look at these cards. I guess we're not opening it so much today. And we are going to take the baseball reference war of the year of the cards, in this case, 2003. We will add those together. Couple of qualifiers that can get you some more points or subtract points if the player has anything on their face. Glasses, mustache, eye black. If they're crying and you can see a tear, it counts. You're gonna get an extra tenth of a point for each. If they're wearing real stirrups where we can see sanitaries underneath them, you're gonna get an extra tenth of a point. But if they are wearing those dreaded two-in-ones, that is a minus tenth of a point. They're wearing sweatbands with their caricature or jersey number, that's an extra tenth of a point. Any of their final three seasons played for the Seattle Mariners, they get an extra tenth of a point for each season. If they are wearing two flaps or no flaps on their batting helmet, you can get an extra tenth of a point. Batting without batting gloves, that's an extra tenth of a point. Any awards that they won, Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, MVP, All-Star, or a gold glove, that is an extra half a point award for each. If there is a Hall of Famer on the card, whether it is their card or not, you're going to get a whole extra point award. And if Ricky Henderson is on the card at all, I am going to get five points of war regardless of who pulls it. If it is Nolan Ryan, Mark will get five points. This These cards are from 2003, so I don't think, Mark, you're going to get any. And then we are both going to pick a team, and uh, if my team comes up, I'm going to get an extra half a point. If Mark's team comes up, he'll get an extra half a point. So what team are you going to go with today, Mark? How about the Dodgers? All right, well, uh, let's see. Since you're going to take the Dodgers... Uh, Obviously honoring Vin Scully. I'm going to go with the team that plays at the uh, at the park where he broadcast a game from the roof. I'm going to go with the Red Sox. All right. All right. As I said, we're finishing up a pack. So we each get seven cards. I've got seven cards in my left hand and seven in my right. Which one would you like? I'm going right. Going right. All right. I'm going to have you go first since I am uh, comfortably in the lead. 
and uh, let's see what we can come up with here. All right. So, Mark, your first card is a pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. You know, anybody that has this first name, I always think of them as they're, they're from Iowa and they're probably a farmer. It's Elmer DeSens. You know, I went to school with an Elmer. Not a lot of people can say that. Uh, I went to school with, uh, my school had Elmer's glue. That's about as close as I can come to that. And we used to pour it all over our hands, let it dry, and then pull it off and pretend like we were pulling our skin off. You. Did you? Did you didn't too. do that? Oh, yeah, I did. But I'm talking last week. Oh. Uh, let's see. Elmer Descends played in the big leagues for 14 years. He played, wow, with a lot of teams. None of them were the Mariners, though, so no points there for that. Let's see. In 2003, he was with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He ended up with an 8-8 record, a 5.07 ERA in 34 starts, 175 two-thirds innings, and uh, all of that is a ERA plus of 92, and that will equal a war of 1.2. So oh, you're wow. still in the positive there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Look at all the teams he played for. Yeah. I think it'd be one of those quicker to name teams he didn't play for. Oh, wow. He was uh, involved in the trade with Oakland that got the A's a Rubio Duraza, one of my favorites. Oh. So I'm down Very with nice. that. Elmer Descends is Mexican, right? You know, he's not an Iowa farm boy. <laughs> well, you they still farm in Mexico. Okay, that's a good point. You're right. I take that back. All right. So you're at 1.2. Next, you've got a Hall of Famer. That's going to help you out. And he's wearing eye black, too. It is uh, catcher, Yvonne Rodriguez. Yvonne had some pretty major years. I feel whenever we play with a pack from, from 2000 or older, we get an Yvonne Rodriguez every single time. Yeah. Let's see, Hall of Famer, 21-year career in the big leagues. Uh, of course, mainly with Texas. It, I mean, some of these teams, it's hard to remember. I mean, he played a season in Florida, played in Detroit for a while, played for the Yankees for half a year, Houston, Texas, and then finished it up with two seasons with the Nationals. Don't remember Man, half of those teams. Funny, I don't, I don't either. Let's see, in 2003, he garnered some MVP votes. This was his lone year with the Marlins. Appeared in 144 games. Uh, let's see, 16 home runs, 85 RBI, a 297 average, 369 on base, and a 120 OPS plus. He had 10 stolen bases that year. Boy, he had 25 stolen bases in 1999. That's amazing. That is a lot. Run? What's, what was he thinking? Yeah, he had 127 career stolen bases for a catcher. That's wow. pretty good. Let's see, all of this equals a war of 4.3, plus he's a Hall of Famer, and he's got eye black, so that will be a 5.6. I'll take it. Very nice. All right, we've talked about Yvonne many times, so I think we're going to just move on to your next card. It is uh, another Texas Ranger. It is Mike Lamb to the Slaughter. Let's see, Michael Robert Lamb played for 10 years in the big leagues, four with the Rangers, four with the Astros, and then a couple of other teams for single seasons. In 2003, it was his final year with Texas. Only appeared in 28 games, did not have any home runs, two RBI, a 132 average, <laughs> and a minus 16 OPS plus. Ouch. That, How do you even do that? That means he was 116% worse than the average <laughs> poser. All of that is a minus 0.5 war. And uh, there's nothing on this card that's going to help you out. You know, just three years later, the guy bats 307. <laughs> yeah, but we're looking at 2003. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that is uh, that's tough luck there. 
Uh, in 2000, in the 2005 World Series for the Astros, he hit the first World Series home run in Astros history and became only the second player whose last name is a type of animal to Homer in the World Series. Can you guess who the first was? Uh, Ted Giraffe. <laughs> yes, I am. Sur- I did not think you were going to pull that one out. Yeah. Oh wait, no. I'm being told it's Tim Salmon in 2002. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, I thought I had it. That was that was very close. It was. Doggone it. <laughs> All right. So you are at 6.3. You are. Uh, oh, your next card. You're going to like this. I, I'm not sure if he finished up his career with the Mariners, but he took over center field from Ken Griffey Jr. It's Mike Cameron. Big Mike Cameron fan. Cammy, who's in a little bit of a beef with Jeff Fry on social media recently. Uh-huh. Uh, don't want to get in the middle of that. We'll let them work it out. Uh, Mike Cameron played in the big leagues for 17 years. He did not play any of his final three seasons in Seattle, though. It was smack dab in the middle of his career. He was yeah. a Mariner. Uh, 2003, he was, uh, it was his last year in Seattle. He was 30 years old, 147 games, 18 home runs, 76 RBI, 17 stolen bases, a 253 average, 343 on base, and a 108 OPS+. Plus. Good news for you. He's a gold glove winner that year, so that'll help you out. Overall, that is a 4.8, plus the gold glove will be 5.3. I cannot see anything here that's going to help you out. So it'll just be a 5.3. You know what Mike Cameron did? He did what a lot of center fielders do, but no left or right fielders ever do. He patrolled center field. Is that is that what center fielders do? They put, What do left and right fielders do, do then? They play good defense. Yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> but a center fielder patrols the yeah. outfield. Oh, he failed a chemistry class in uh, in high school, and his grandmother wouldn't let him play baseball because of that. Stay in school, kids, and do it. Of course, he hit four home runs in one game for the Mariners in 2002. His fifth at-bat, warning track power, just missed. Yes, yes I was listening on the radio. I did not see that game. All right, so you've, uh, you are at 11.6. Next, you've got a guy. This could help. Depends on uh, if he was during his like very dominant couple of years. It is a pitcher for your team, the Los Angeles Dodgers, right off the bat, Eric Gagne. Oh, or is it Gagne? Yes. I, 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 cannot keep, I cannot keep them straight. No, Greg Gagne. Eric Gagne. Eric Gagne. Like the, uh, the Jennifer Garner uh, shampoo. Gagne. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you're close. That's how I remember. (laughs) Let's see. You know what? We're going to get listed on now a list of best podcasts about hair products. Well, I'm okay if it's like a Jennifer Garner podcast. I'm I'm good with that. You think she'll come on the show? I hope so. (laughs) Uh, All right, let's let's get back to Harry Gagne. Let's see, 10 years in the big league, Cy Young Award winner, three-time All-Star, member of the 2007 World Series team with the Red Sox. And uh, let's see, in 2003, good news for you, also an All-Star, and he won the Cy Young that year. That's pretty good. So, yeah, and he came in sixth in MVP voting. I think you're going to like how this works out. Went uh, with two and three record, a 1.2 ERA in 77 games. He led the league with 55 saves, 82 and a third innings pitched, 137 strikeouts for an ERA plus. This might be the highest I've ever seen. 337. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, wow. Okay. Wow. All of this equates to a wow. Wow. This, his war, I mean, I guess he was a closer, so he's not in there a lot, but only a 3.7 war. Interesting. Uh, this was the highest of his career, 
but I was expecting something in like the fives. Yeah, interesting. Well, but let, I don't, I'm not sure how to dissect war to the point of the difference between a closer and a third baseman. You know, well, I, apparently I know it's it's well. much less for a closer. Apparently so. <laughs> so hey, you know what Vince Scully said? Statistics are used much like a drunk uses a lamppost for support, not illumination. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to disagree with Vin. I mean, I'm doing research on Vin. I disagree with Vin on several things, but uh, not really much when it comes to baseball. But I'm going to disagree with that. But let's see. 3.7. He's on the Dodgers, which is your team. So you're going to get a half a point of war for that. He was the Cy Young winner that year, and he made the all-star team. So that's a full point there. So that is going to be a 5.2, and there's nothing else on the card. So it'll be a 5.2. That's pretty good. That's the, yeah, I think that's it. the same as, as Pudge. <laughs> I'm not upset about that, yeah. Uh, so Gagne came, uh, he's Canadian, first of all, just like Larry Walker. Joey Votto, by the way, today just became the, uh, claimed the title for most games played in Major League Baseball as a Canadian. Being oh, a Canadian, wow. not as a Canadian. <laughs> He's right. always a Canadian. But Gagne came from a French-speaking Canadian province and knew very little English. He became proficient in English by watching the uh, Keenan and Kel on Nickelodeon. <laughs> so, okay. There you go. Hey, whatever works, man. Hey, yeah. All right. So you've got two cards left. You're at 16.8. Next, you have got a Toronto Blue Jay. It is Shannon Stewart. I do remember Shannon Stewart. I just don't know why I remember Shannon Stewart. Yeah, I remember Shannon Stewart. I think he played for the Twins as well. Wait, yep, didn't you date a Shannon Stewart? Uh, yes, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, did, I did learn, though, that uh, Madison Bumgardner came from a town that has like 18 different families whose last name is Bumgardner. And in high school, he dated a girl named Madison Bumgardner. Whoa. Yeah. Twilight Zone. <laughs> That's weird. I remember Shannon Stewart because he did play for the A's, too, for one year. But yeah, I remember him as a guy that stole some bases and, and was uh, a center fielder, quick quick guy. Yeah, he did steal quite a few bases. 196 stolen bases in 14 years. Played for the Blue Jays for 10, Minnesota for four, and then the A's for that one year near the end of his career. In 2003, he split time between Toronto and Minnesota, ended up with a 307 average, a 367 on base, 13 home runs, 73 RBI. He only stole four bases that year and was caught six times. Not so good. Uh, let's see, a 114 OPS plus. He did come in fourth in the MVP balloting this year. And all of that together will equal a war of 3.1, the exact same as Greg Gagne. Wow. Uh, he does have eye black on here, so that will be a 3.6 for you. With the A's, remember the A's are the team that has, uh, it's been the longest since they were no hit. June 7th, 2007, Kurt Schilling had a no hitter against the A's, broken up by Stewart with two out in the bottom of the ninth inning. Way to go. That's, that's what we like to see. There you go. All right, so you are down to your final card. It is a pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. Guy uh, that uh, had a brother that I believe is still a major league umpire. It's Randy Wolf. I believe they had to shift things around to make sure that uh, his brother was never behind home plate when when Randy was on the mound. Uh, let's see. In 16 years, he pitched in the big leagues. Good news for you. He was an all-star once. That was in 2003. Uh, of those 16 years, half of it was spent with the Phillies. 2003, he went 16-9 and nine with a 4.23 ERA, 200 innings pitched, 177 strikeouts for a 94 ERA+, plus, and that is a .8 in the war department. 
and uh, nothing's going to help you on this card. This might be my favorite little tidbit we've ever uncovered about you know players when we pull them in this segment. In 2007, Randy Wolf purchased a house in Los Angeles that was previously owned by Slash from Guns wow. N' Roses. You think he bought it for the nostalgic value? I don't. I don't know. But this, much like John Voight's car, uh, was there a snake pit in this house? I'm wondering. There could have been. He could have bought. Like I said, John Voight's LeBaron. Yeah, there's only one way to know if you've truly bought John Voight's LeBaron, and that's to look and see if there is a a, a pencil in the yes. glove box that has bite marks, marks on it. Yeah, and, see and you ask his dentist. Yeah, that's, that's the only way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you racked up a 21.2. I feel like I can beat that. I mean, of course, this is a short stack, though, but I've got a Hall of Famer on the top of my deck here, so... Uh-oh. That uh, I like it, and uh, he's got a son that is uh, playing currently that is working towards being an, a Hall of Famer as well. It's Vlad Guerrero. Yeah, he's, yeah, he was good. All right, I got to make sure I click on the right uh, right link here, but Vlad the Impaler, Hall of Famer, MVP, nine-time All-Star, eight-time Silver Slugger, 16 years in the big leagues, eight with Montreal, six with the Angels, and then one with Texas, one with Baltimore to finish it up. 2003, one of the rare years that he was not an all-star. <laughs> there, there's Between 99 and 2007, he was an all-star every year except for 2003. This year, he only hit 333 with 25 home runs and 79 RBI. Uh, let's see, uh, 426 on base, a 586 slugging for a 156 OPS plus. Not good enough to make the all-star game. All of that equals a 3.2 for me. Not bad. More than more than the Cy Young Award, Cy Young Award winning closer. Yeah, <laughs> three point two. Good news for me. No batting gloves, so that'll be a three point three plus. He's a Hall of Famer, so that'll be a four point three right off the bat. Nice score. Yeah, I like that. Along the lines of, of Steve Garvey and Paul Molitor, so you know where this is going. There was a paternity suit against Vlad that he had eight children from five different women. I don't do math, but that sounds like a lot. It seems seems excessive, but okay. (laughs) All right, moving on. Uh, Next, I have got pitcher for the New York Mets. I remember this guy working uh, in Atlanta. We hated when he started at home against Atlanta because this guy was the slowest worker. Uh, You knew it was going to be a a three-and-a-half-hour game. Steve Traxel. (laughs) Time to take out the Traxel. And you knew if Glavin was starting for, for Atlanta, that it was going to be an hour just to get through the first inning. With as long as he took and as much as Glavin struggled in the first inning, it was not going to be pretty. Let's see, Traxel, 16 years in the big leagues. Uh, half of it with the Chicago Cubs. 2003, he was with the Mets. Pretty good year, 16-10, and 10, 3.78 ERA, 204 and two-thirds innings, 204 hits, 111 strikeouts for a 111 ERA+. Plus. And that will equal a 2.8. Very close to the National League Signing Award winners. 3.1, 2.8. Nothing else on the card's going to help me out. Oh, yeah. Traxel gave up uh, McGuire's record-breaking 62nd home run in 1998. Very nice. You know, it's always good to be remembered. Yeah, you're in the record book. All right, next. I remember this guy. I think he was fast. I don't think he did a whole lot. I'm not sure he stuck around a whole long time. For the St. Louis Cardinals, it's Kerry Robinson. Oh, wow. Yeah, I kind of remember. Let's see. Yeah, only seven only seven years. Oh, what a disappointment. Uh, seven years in the big leagues. Came up with Tampa 
And then Cincinnati, I remember him only with uh, with St. Louis. He also went on to play for the Padres and the Royals. But in uh, 2003, he was an everyday outfielder, 116 games. Well, I take that back. He only had 208 at-bats, so he must have probably probably a defensive replacement uh, with that number of at-bats. Only hit 250, a 281 on base, a 59 OPS plus, and that is going to equal a minus 1.0. You have to be pretty bad to minus an entire Yeah, a whole point. point. Yeah. Uh, he does have sunglasses on, so that'll help me a little bit, but that's a minus 0.9 for me. Ouch. For his career, a minus 0.5. Well, it's good to see he averaged out a little better. Yeah, he only had two years where he was actually a plus in the war department. Straight from his Wikipedia page, Robinson is known for a few distinct feats. He pinch hit in the eighth inning for Mark McGuire in game five of the 2001 NLDS. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's odd. Game, let's see, game five, what was the score here? Because how, who's pinch hitting for him? Five, it was a two to one game. The Cardinals were losing. Was McGuire hurt? hurt? Yeah, that must have been. Uh, Also the only player in Major League Baseball history to wear both number double zero and zero at some point. (laughs) Oh, these guys have put their IQ on the uniforms. Ouch. Wow. Okay. Well, I wear 34. What do you think that says about me? All right. I'm at 6.2. Next, I have got a pitcher for the Phillies. Uh, To go along with your Wolf, uh, Randy Wolf, I've got Brandon Duckworth. Oh, man, I remember Brandon Duckworth. Um, there was a football player, Duckworth, too, at the same time. I'll take your word for it. Uh, let's see, Brandon Duckworth, however, eight years in the big leagues, three with the Royals, three with the Phillies, two with Houston. In 2003 with the Phillies, he went 4-7, and 4.94 ERA, and uh, 81 ERA plus, and that is a minus .5. I am going the wrong <laughs> Jeffrey, way here. Jeff, what are you doing, man? I'm just I'm looking for a big comeback in the in the final innings here. I think we've approached the uh, trade deadline and you're selling. All right. Uh, next, we've got a guy, uh, a favorite with the Oakland A's, favorite with the Pirates, who he's probably known most for. I'm going to get points because he never wore batting gloves huh. uh, and uh, you did not want to shake his hands. It is nice. Jason Kendall. Jason Kendall, who uh, at the end of his career uh, could not even throw to second base, couldn't lift his <laughs> couldn't lift his arm above his shoulder. It was so messed up. First round draft pick by the uh, by the Pirates in 1992. 15 years in the big leagues, nine with Pittsburgh, three with Oakland, and then a bunch of other teams. I will always remember him because he uh, started a fight with John Lackey. Who I want to start a fight with John Lackey. I never liked the guy. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to get into it. Uh, 2003, with the Bucks, he was 29 years old, 150 games behind the dish for the Bucks that year. Always a good hitting catcher. Career average yeah. of 288. Always had some speed for a catcher, too. 189 career stolen bases. This year, he hit 325, six home runs, 58 RBI, a 399 on base for a catcher. Very nice. Very, very good. Yeah. 112 OPS plus. And that equals a 4.5 war. Wow. Decimating the National League Cy Young Award winner for that <laughs> Man. year. I guess having a, you know, a guy that catches 150 games and has an on-base percentage, a career on-base of 366 is more important than a closer. Okay, fine. I'll give it to you. Man, he had, in 1998, he had a war of 5.6. Wow. That is incredible. 
something else very impressive, and you know this is one of my favorite stats, was hit by a pitch 255, 254 times in his career. Yeah, he got plunked a lot. That was what precipitated the fight with Lackey. Is Lackey claims that he moved his elbow into the into the pitch and well yeah he just didn't care jason kendall is not going to back down from anybody so <laughs> and, and by the way if you're not watching mariners tie france this guy's going to set the record for getting hit by a pitch i have never seen anybody become a target like this guy well they're going to make him take the magnet out of his uniform i guess so. they're going to have to i will never forget there was a play that a's fans know very well i think it was at kansas city and it was the bottom of the ninth, and the A's were up by one. The tying run was on third. Kendall was behind the plate, and there was a wild pitch or a pass ball. It went back. Uh, he scrambled back to get it. The pitcher was late getting to the plate. The tying run comes, you know, towards the plate. Mask off with his bare hand, not in the you know, ball, not in the mitt. With his bare hand, he dives to the plate and makes the tag of the guy sliding in with his spikes up with his bare, you know, his ball, the ball in his bare hand to, to end the game. Uh, yes. Absolutely. Just, I mean, that, he's just a gritty, gutty guy. All right. So I'm at 10.3. I've got two cards left. You ended up with a 21.2. So I'm, I'm a ways away here. Uh, this might help though. Uh, let's see. I've got a lot of Phillies in this uh, in this round. I have got J Roll, Jimmy Rollins. Ooh, yeah, some good seasons in there. Jimmy, uh, of course, from the Bay Area here. Big Ricky Henderson fan. Rolling, uh, rolling up, uh, growing up. J Roll. Let's see. Seventeen years in the big leagues. Most of it was with Philly. Fifteen years in Philly. Then at the end, the Dodgers and the White Sox for a season each. 2003, not an all-star. No MVP votes. Very disappointing. He was the MVP in 2007. Yes. 2003, though, 156 games. He hit 263, eight home runs, 62 RBI, 20 stolen bases, a 320 on base. That's not great. And only a 90 OPS plus. That equals a 2.8 war. And uh, he's got sunglasses on. That's uh, that's all that's going to help me. So that'll be a 2.9. You don't need a big card here. Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to need a big card. Oh, well, this is this is good stuff here. First of all, uh, he's the cousin of former player Tony Tarasco, which was I think Tony Tarasco was uh, the right fielder in Yankee Stadium when uh, when the kid robbed you know <laughs> grabbed the Derek Jeter quote unquote home oh, run yeah, in the playoffs no. against the Orioles. Yeah. I think yeah. that was Tony Tarasco. But uh, beyond that, Rollins played the trumpet while growing up in, in Oakland and was featured in various MC Hammer videos. <laughs> wow. I like that. Hammer, of course, a friend of the show. Okay, well, maybe not quite a friend of the show. He retweets but... us often. That's right. That's whatever it takes, man. All right, so I'm at 13.2. My final card. I need a uh, an eight-point war. Now, if this guy f got war for being a utility guy that could play anywhere, I might have a chance, but I don't think that's how you get war. It is a super utility guy for the New York Mets, super Joe McEwen. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't think Joe's going to pull this one off for you. Although, like you said, super utility. Yeah, dude played everywhere. So Joe, nine years in the big leagues, the, the position column here on Baseball Reference looks like phone numbers every season. Seven, DH, <laughs> five, nine, six, four, three, eight, D... <laughs> I mean, uh, every position uh, except for pitcher or catcher. 
which is, uh, I, I'm fairly certain he was the emergency catcher for the Mets. I, I'm fairly certain I heard that many times. But uh, let's see. 2003, he appeared in 119 games, hit 241, one home run, 16 RBI, three stolen bases, no caught stealing. I like that. But a 61 OPS plus, and that is going to get me a point two which, uh, you know, I did go to Wazoo, but I'm pretty sure that that 13.4 is less than 21.2. Well, you know, you can't win them all, Jeff. No, we just, uh, we were taking a break. Uh, We had our backup catcher in, giving some guys uh, a day off. And, of course. Uh, yeah, so we're going to go ahead, have you win that one, and uh, yeah, we're going to go uh, hit the showers, literally, because uh, both Mark and I are, uh, there's no AC in either of these studios, and we are literally <laughs> sweating. I'm dying right here, yeah. So that's going to wrap up this instance of Wax Packs Heroes. It's also going to wrap up our show. Uh, we want to thank everybody. Hey, we've gotten a lot of emails <laughs> recently. Uh, we just want to say we really do appreciate all of our listeners. We had a lot of fun talking about Pepper and Pickle. And, you know, last week we uh, I made sure to give a shout out that we got a, an updated review and, and all that. Uh, listeners, do not be afraid of us. We are not going to. <laughs> so, look, not all of the uh, uh, emails have been answered yet. I promise we're just a little behind some crazy stuff going on and schedule wise, but everybody's going to get a response. I promise. Okay. Yeah, so if, if uh, again, uh, we love to hear from you. Uh, we are going to have some fun with them, though, so just be aware of that. Of course. But uh, if you do want to get some more of us, you can find us on all the socials. We're at 2 Strike Noise. That is at TWO Strike Noise. Twitter, uh, Instagram, not very active on Instagram anymore. Uh, I don't like pictures every time so uh, that's uh, that's a me thing uh, also you find us on youtube and twitch and uh, we've got the email address that mark likes to hang out at what was that again jeff oh yeah it's two strike noise t-w-o strike noise at gmail.com all right we will see you again next week because we're going to do another one uh, when we come back for another episode of two strike noise thank you god bless you have a great day 